0: The following is presented to you in around sound. It was recorded with whatever was lying around. She insist on respect the sister walk around like a woman. She won't speak less of something worse saying, don't play. The girl takes herself so seriously. People stare curious. she got a natural way. Her hips sway furiously. Luxuriously. Carries herself like the cutest, most purtiest thing. This side of the bay
1: Hey! This is Lady Don't Take No, your weekly roundup of all of the real and none of the fake. I'm your host, Alicia Garza. This show is pro black, pro queer, proudly feminist, and pro do what you like. Every week, you're gonna get the best of what goes on in my head, what we loving on, and what we hating on, what we might be, and what we ain't gonna do. Politics, pop culture, how to get through festival season without catching the Rona. We cover it all. We know that no matter where you are, it's a challenging time, a changing time, a time of transformation. It's all the things all the time nowadays, but we are going to help you understand the dynamics of this time every single week. So be sure to tune in, tell a friend, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We do it for the culture, so the pod is free 99 because we know that with a country in chaos, the least we could do is keep you from putting your money anywhere else than where it's needed. Of the night. our guest this week is the new york times best-selling author of such books as the tipping point *Link*, outliers and more he is the co-founder and president of the audio production company pushkin industries which is the home to his popular podcast revisionist history as well as his new podcast called Legacy of Speed, about when two black sprinters raised their fists in protest at the 1968 Olympic Games and how that shook the world. He has been a staff writer for The New Yorker since 1996, and I am thrilled to have this gentleman on the podcast today. Please welcome Malcolm Gladwell. Hey, Malcolm. Hey, Alicia. Hey, it's so good to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us.
0: No, no, no. My pleasure. Excellent.
1: Excellent. Malcolm, you know, we're going to try out a new question here on the podcast. I, I, I did get some feedback from a friend. She's like, girl, how many times are you going to ask these pandemic questions? <laughs> and so I was thinking about it. And I'm really into this thing right now because of the state of politics in this country, um, where I want to tell stories about a time when you changed your mind and what happened, preferably about something you were like really, really staunch about, but then you saw it differently.
0: Oh, wow. Uh, I feel like I changed my mind a lot. I changed my mind about people, about, you know, I'm someone who, when I was 18, I had a picture of Ronald Reagan up on my wall. So, oh. you know, I've changed my mind um, a <laughs> lot. I grew up in Canada and I really thought that, believe it or not, I did not like the Canadian healthcare system and thought the American healthcare system was better. Oh. Even wrote articles on this in my 20s and then lived here for a little while, and realized, you know what? I'm wrong. The opposite is true. I flipped on that. Even wrote articles about how I changed my mind on that. Uh, changed my mind ten different times about. I've written a lot about policing over the course of my career. Probably more than anything else. And yet, no subject has occupied my attention more than either that or education. I've been constantly evolving my position on policing over the last twenty-five years. Um, I feel like every time I Go in depth on something, I get a new insight, which causes me to adjust my thinking right now. I'm immersed a lot in sixties civil rights radicalism, mm-hmm. and you know i I don't think the same way about it as I did two years ago mm-hmm. um, you know i so I feel like my default position is to be if I'm not changing my mind on a regular basis i I think I'm not learning
1: mm, I love that. I really love that and i I wonder when we change our minds. You're right, it actually gives us more new and deeper perspective on things that we can even feel really staunch about. What do you think changing our mind might do for the state of politics in this country?
0: Well, in order to change your mind a lot, you have to have a kind of baseline sense of humility about your own positions. You have to realize that you can be wrong and will be wrong. And you also have have to have a kind of curiosity about what other people think. Because the way that you change your mind is you become open to new ideas. And Mm -hmm. so you've got to be both humble and curious. And it's not an easy thing to be both humble and curious, particularly we get very invested in our positions and being able to go back and say, you know what? I was wrong. And somebody else who I used to argue with is right. That's a difficult thing for most of us to do. You know, I, I mentioned some things that I've changed my mind on. I'm always passionate about what I believe in. So I'm, I'm, I'm turning on a passion when I change my mind. That's, you know, that requires a, a a lot of energy and audacity, if nothing else.
1: 100%. Well, let's dive in, Malcolm. I want people who are listening to get to know you a little bit better. And as you mentioned, you uh, were raised in Canada with a Jamaican mother who was a psychotherapist and a father who was a mathematics professor. You've said that your mom influenced you to be a writer. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
0: Well, yeah. My mom, so my mom wrote in the 60s, wrote this a memoir, well, you know, way before the age of the memoir, um, called mm. Brownface Big Master. Um, Brownface being her, Big Master being God. And it was all about mm. her childhood and what It Was Like Moving to England in the 1950s and Marrying a White Man, My Dad. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very powerful book. One of the first serious works of nonfiction I read, very, very small kid, didn't really understand it. Subsequently, reread it many times. But it powerfully influenced me as a writer. My mom writes very simply and clearly. She has a very kind of humble and open uh, approach to the world. She readily admits that she's wrong when she's wrong. She's able to be deeply empathetic in the way she treats people who are think differently than she does. So it was a very, you know, for a foundational work for me, that writing approach is reflective of the kind of person that she is, mm. and so that had a big, huge influence on me um, growing up. And then I had a, you know, a father who was a mathematician, a deeply rational, highly conceptual. Um, so i got I got both sides. I got you know the the interpersonal and I got the I got the rational..
1: Mm-hmm. How did you go from writing to podcasting? Uh, we know that you have a uh, your own podcasting platform, and then I want to dive into this new podcast, which I have to say is excellent. Uh, but I'd love to hear, you know, what was the shift like for you from going from writing and not just writing, but five New York Times bestselling books to the world of podcasting which is a little bit different.
0: Yeah, I was attracted by, you know, I'd ride the subway in New York and I when I got to New York everybody was reading magazines and books. And then I kind of rode the subway one day and realized everybody was listening to their phones, <laughs> podcasts. <laughs> and I realized, "Oh, I'm going to be irrelevant if I don't not abandon writing, but if I don't if I'm not represented in this new medium, I'm going to get left behind." And then I realized there's a kind of there are certain kinds of stories that are really most appropriately told in audio. Audio is very an emotional medium. And being able to hear people's voices brings them alive in a way it's hard to do on the page. Like, you know, I know we're gonna be talking about this Legacy of Speed podcast, and it's all about these famous athletes from the 1960s and this moment of protest that they engineered. And I interviewed one of them who's still alive, a guy named Tommy Smith. Who's a kind of giant of, yeah. of sports activism? And you just have to hear his voice. You know, yeah. you there's a you know, he's in his 80s now. He's lived this super interesting life. There's no substitute for hearing him rumble on, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. getting a sense of the complexity and intelligence in his voice. Things mm-hmm. I can tell you that on the page, but there's no substitute for hearing it for yourself.
1: You know, listening to a few of the episodes yesterday of this podcast, um, I have to attest to your storytelling skills. They are excellent. So tell us, what's your approach to storytelling? What makes a powerful story?
0: Well, I mean, there's the obvious things. Characters with conflicts and people that you're you're curious about or you're drawn to. I think that um, a story is a narrative where The audience's expectations are betrayed. So you have to take someone someplace. Mm. You have to challenge your audience. I think those are really crucial. I think stories where you know where it's going to end and where you approve of where it's going to end, those can be kind of moderately satisfying, but they represent a kind of uh, lost opportunity. You know, in, in this Legacy of Speed podcast, we're telling the story of, This moment when these athletes in the Mexico City games in 1968, the iconic photograph of John Carlos and Tommy Smith on the victory stand for the 200 meters with their two young black men with their fists raised and black gloves on their hand and their heads bowed during the national anthem. A picture that went around the world. And, you know, to this day, I could show that picture to most people and they would know what it was about or think they know what it was about. And we wanted to tell the story behind that. And the thing about that story is at every turn the story surprises you. And that's a great story. If you could do that in storytelling, where you could have these turns where your viewer is like, whoa, you know, if I hear whoa, I feel I've succeeded. If I hear a sigh of pleasure, I'm not sure if I've succeeded. I value surprise over pleasure.
1: a master storyteller. And I just have to say that again, for people who are listening, definitely, absolutely, 100% stop what you're doing and dive into the legacy of speed. You will not regret it. I have to say, as a girl who's Bay Area born and raised, I always love to hear stories about places like San Jose State University, um, which a lot of people still, I think, it's totally not on their radar, but it should be. Uh, the Bay Area itself has such a, a long and rich and complex legacy of um, mm-hmm. being the kind of crucible, right, for a lot of the resistance moments and movements that we know about. You know, as I was listening yesterday, Malcolm, and I was all excited because, you know, it was like house cleaning day. Basically, I don't celebrate the 4th of July, so I was like, I get to clean my house. And so I was cleaning from top to bottom, and I was listening to the podcast And it did exactly that. It made me say, whoa. And I'm somebody who I think knows a lot about history, especially political history. There was so much that I learned. I didn't know as much about the the coach and kind of his background. I didn't know as much about the various symbols in that photo. I mean, I met um, and spoke with and bonded with Dr. Harry Edwards, and I got to learn a little bit more about him. Your podcast really does kind of zoom out and zoom in all at once to give you this rich texture. What got you interested in telling this particular story?
0: Well, I'm a big, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of running. First of all, track and field is mm-hmm. my, that's my sport. So I'd known, perif- you know, superficially about this story. So I was drawn to it because to tell a story about runners is like, you know, that's gold standard for me. Yeah. That's your jam. Um, <laughs> and I'd already been working, you know, I've been working on a book that's about the 60s and about civil rights movement in part in the, in the 60s. So I was already familiar with the territory and aware of just how much complexity there is in that time and place. You know, this, the central question at the heart of Legacy of Speed is, you know, the you were a young black athlete in 1968 who was among the best in the world at your sport. The Olympic Games are coming up. You are deeply discomforted by what's been going on in the United States. We, remember, we are one one year removed from 1967, when there were 150 race riots across this country. Probably right. the most tumultuous year in American history, right. or in 20th century American history. I, don't I was going
1: to say we'll talk about yeah, there, <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, we, uh, yeah, yeah, 20th century American history. Fair enough. Fair um, enough. And their question was, "What do we do?" Do we boycott or do we go and make a statement? And that is a, I don't have a good answer to that question. I don't think there is one hard and fast answer, but it is the question that everyone who chooses to resist is faced with ultimately. Am I going to seize the platform and try and usurp it for my own ends? Or am I going to turn my back on what's going on and say I'll have no part of it? We went through this with, how we dealt with the apartheid regime in South Africa. We dealt with this, with the 1936 Olympics and Hitler using those games as a as a showcase. I mean, I could go on. I could give you a million examples. Even, you know, I've been wrapped up in right now in a project about Tom Bradley, the mm. first black mayor of Los Angeles. Oh, I can't wait to see that one. Black <laughs> men of his generation had, black people of that, his generation had this question yeah. every day of their lives. You know, they were faced with a deeply racist power structure. Do they join or do they turn their back on it? Tom Brady said, I'm going to join and made a series of really, really difficult choices as a result of that decision. Other people who I have deep respect for said, I'm not joining, right? I'm staying on the sidelines and raise my voice. Yeah. To this day, I don't have a, I find that an incredibly difficult, complicated, fascinating decision. And that's a decision these guys had. And that's the core of the podcast is about that. Do you stay or do you go? Right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What? Give me the pros and cons. They chose to go and they pulled it off uh, despite all odds. And it's an incredible story.
1: Mm. You know, one of the things that was so striking to me was the parallels between these stories that you're telling from 1968 and the stories of today. Earlier you said, you know, arguably this was one of the most, if not the most, tumultuous periods in American history. And last night I was sitting on my front porch and I was talking to a friend of mine who had come over for dinner. And we were asking each other, you know, how do you know if American society is in collapse? And I brought up this statement that you made on the podcast where you said it was one of the most tumultuous moments in history. And I thought to myself, we're in a pretty tumultuous moment. <laughs> And so the question for me was, um, you know, from the people that you talked with, from the people that you talked to, you know, there are so many parallels between the unrest, the social disorganization, the polarization of, of that time, and these times now. I loved hearing about how Dr. Edwards really counseled and supported Colin Kaepernick, who As we know, still doesn't have a job because he chose, right, to stand up and speak out. And a lot of these issues are still uh, not only persistent, but they're they're resonating and reverberating, right, across generations. What can we learn from Legacy of Speed about how we might look at the state of politics today?
0: I guess a couple of things. One is we can learn that individuals really matter, which is an easy thing to forget and get cynical about. But that iconic moment at Mexico City, which demonstrates to the world that, you know, there is something powerful brewing in the United States that um, requires people to stand up and take notice of, that isn't something that was inevitable. That was the result of a very small group of people who decided to take on those challenges and be courageous in the moment. Harry Edwards and the athletes, John Carlos. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tommy Smith, Lee Evans. They if you have a, a lesser group of people at that moment, that doesn't happen. So, that's the one thing. So, I think sometimes we can get so disheartened by the state of our institutions that we forget, you know what? At the end of the day it's people that matter. Oh. The second thing I think there is something optimistic about that story in the sense that those guys in 68 changed forever the way athletes view themselves and the way the world views athletes now is that victory won that transformation over no colin kaepernick is proof that at least in the nfl a lot of people 40 50 years later still have problems with athletes who choose to speak their mind mm-hmm. by the way colin kaepernick it wasn't like he was speaking his mind he was taking a knee for Correct. Goodness sake. i mean the whole thing Correct. don't even get me started i'm gonna get so riled <laughs> up about it i know me but too. Um, <laughs> but at the same time look beyond the, the NFL and look at the NBA, you have, or the WNBA, you've got groups of young men and women who now, no one even thinks twice when they stand up and join the, the public conversation about issues of consequence. You know, it's like, that's new, right? It's no. when Muhammad Ali did this in, ni- in the 1960s, it was like so rare and crazy. And, or when Tommy Smith raises his fist, it's like shocks the world now Steph Curry talks and people are like, that's actually really cool and appropriate, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's a huge step forward. And I think we should give ourselves some credit that we're not in as as strange and dark a place as we were in in 68.
1: Mm. That's helpful and a very optimistic viewpoint that I deeply appreciate. You know, one of the things that I think is also really fascinating about the podcast is it's not only going into this rich and textured story about, you know, how four working class (laughs) or three working class athletes really not only change the course of American history, but become uh, resistance and rebellion icons like forever. Right. So that's that's a big chunk of this. But then there's also this overlapping story, right? Of the coach, right? Who, in the cradle, right? Of what we now know as Silicon Valley, innovates on a running technique that literally changes the entire game. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that because um, I also thought that that had really interesting parallels to politics today, but maybe give our listeners a little insight into. Uh, the way in which this coach revolutionized running and maybe revolutionized the movement.
0: Yeah. So all of these athletes who protest at Mexico City come from the same school, San Jose State. They're all teammates on the track team there. And they're all coached by the same guy, this guy named Bud Winter. And Bud Winter is probably the greatest collegiate coach in the tw- of the 20th century. Way more important at the end of the day than John Wooden or any of those other sort of Pat Summitt or any, he invents, reinvents sprinting. And he's the guy, it's so commonplace now, we forget how revolutionary it was at the time, who says the way to run fastest is to relax, is to hold yourself back. So used to people used to think the way to exert maximum effort and perform at your best was to be, to obviously exert yourself, to grimace and pump your arms wildly and do everything in your, in your power to embody power and effort. And winter was like, no, that's wrong. Fundamentally wrong. That the way you reach peak performance is to hold back uh-huh. is to stay within yourself is to be in a, almost like a meditative trance. And when you look at Usain Bolt, for example, Usain Bolt runs the way he runs in that magnificently fluid, relaxed way, because his coach was a student of Bud Winter. And all great world-class sprinters today run in the, in the kind of image of Bud Winter. Um, so that's happening at the same time as these athletes are you know, on his path to this iconic social protest. They are embodying a revolution in performance, high performance. It's, it's all happening at the same place out of the same little commuter school in San Jose. It's just a nuts, the whole story's nuts. It's like, <laughs> You would never you couldn't make this up. Mm-hmm.
1: what I loved about it was that this coach he wasn't just revolutionizing running as I understood it, right. He came up with all of these other innovations and inventions to um redo and make sharper, right people's approaches to other things as well.
0: yeah, so he comes out of a movement that was applying the same kind of relaxation and meditative techniques to military pilots. And it soon spread to all kinds of demanding high-pressure domains that uh, this whole, I mean, now, like I said, now it's commonplace, but back then it wasn't. This idea that having mental and emotional control over what you're doing is as important as, as your kind of physical and intellectual uh, capabilities at the moment of performance.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, now there's all kinds of schools of thought around that, even inside of movement work. You know, Malcolm, I'm wondering in our last couple of minutes together, you know, tell our listeners what is so profound and important about this podcast. We both know, right? There's millions of podcasts out there, but why should they listen to the Legacy of Speed?
0: Because the Legacy of Speed is about a moment when the world of sports really changes. So you had you had little like intimations of this in the early 60s with, you know, with Muhammad Ali and with other people who are understanding that particularly as Black people, sports gives them a an opportunity to participate in the national conversation about issues of real importance. But it wasn't until this handful, like you say, these three working-class kids from an unknown commuter school in San Jose make this, in front of the entire world, conduct this iconic protest that kind of switches flipped. And we go from... Remember, the Olympic movement prior to that act was very aggressively, it promoted the idea that politics and sports did not mix. That when you, it's the shut up and dribble idea, you know? When you're on the field or the track or the, in the arena, you are solely concerned with your sport. And all other questions are secondary, not Mm -hmm. even secondary, they're off the table. And these guys say, there is no part of American life even a 200-meter dash that is separate from the broader conversations we're having about social justice. That is a hugely important insight. And sports will never be the same after those guys make that point.
1: And just like that, It's time for our weekly roundup of all the things lady just ain't gonna do this week. Number one, police murder in Akron, Ohio, where a child is shot 60 times and then handcuffed. Y'all, by now you've likely already heard that Jalen Walker, just 25 years old, was shot multiple times during a traffic stop and killed. The medical examiner has classified Walker's death as a homicide and said that when they arrived, Walker was handcuffed and laying on his back. He was apparently shot in the face, the abdomen, and upper legs. Now, y'all know how this goes. Police have a story, and inevitably, another story finna come out. Their story is that they attempted to pull Walker over in a traffic stop, and that he led them on a high-speed chase into a residential neighborhood. According to officers, he then jumped out of a moving vehicle and created what they called a deadly threat to officers— and officers used stun guns and gunshots in response. Now, allegedly, they attempted the traffic stop at approximately 12.30 a.m. By 12.35, 10, and yes, 10 police cars are chasing Walker's car. The police say a weapon was found in the car after they shot this boy, what has been reported to be over 60 times. Now, look, we don't wait to see what the details are, but regardless of the details, child, 60 fucking times— you shot that child 60 fucking times? Seriously? Other things Lady ain't do this week is Brittany Griner pleading guilty to drug trafficking. Now, this story continues to get more and more heartbreaking. Brittany Griner, WNBA player who was detained in Russia for alleged drug trafficking, pleaded guilty this week in a Russian court. Now, Lady has it on good authority that the courts in Russia are a fucking sham. Greiner was primed to be found guilty anyway and sentenced to at least 10 years in prison for what amounted to a few vape cartridges in her suitcase. Word out on the street is that pleading guilty might be Greiner's best hope at getting free. Her family is hoping for a presidential pardon from that dude Putin, but none of that can even happen until the case has been decided. So basically, regardless of her plea, Russia is going to continue with the trial because that's how they do things there. And the trial could, and probably will, take months. Greiner has been approved to stay in detention until December 20th. Y'all, it's July. Now also, apparently there's something Biden can do to expedite this process and basically bypass the trial. But honestly, at this point, word out on the street is that the best bet here is actually a prisoner swap. We also heard that this week was the first time that Sherelle Greiner, Brittany's wife, has actually met with the president about the case. Now, child, wait. It's been more than four months, and a whole last pressure campaign had to happen to even get this phone call pop in. Now, I know Biden got a lot on his plate, but what the entire fuck is going on here, sir? Taking Griner into custody on this bullshit charge amounts basically to informally making her a prisoner of war. You just gonna let that shit happen on your watch? Tisk tisk. No wonder people talking about the U.S. being not the shit. Other things Lady Ain't to Do this week is a mass shooting on July 4th in Chicago. Now, we've been talking about mass shootings on this podcast for at least the last few months, and I suppose this month ain't going to be no different. But on the white people's holiday, the white man shot up a 4th of July parade, killing seven people and injuring at least two dozen more in the Highland Park neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. The shooter was a 22-year-old white man, who unloaded more than 70 rounds of ammunition from a rooftop. He wore women's clothing and concealer to hide his tattoos. Now, Lady is going to say this one more time, and maybe another time later on. I think the mental health conversation with respect to these shootings is a complete fucking cop-out. I think we need to be talking about who is getting radicalized and around what. What's going on with all these young, predominantly white men shooting up the place? Everybody ain't got mental health issues, child. There's a group of people that are preparing for war in this country, and we are completely and totally unprepared. Let me go on over here to the Southern Poverty Law Center and look up hate groups, because yeah, y'all worried about Russia, and I get it. I really do. But also, there's an insurrection brewing, and nobody's fucking talking about it. Okay, I take that breath. Here's what Lady wants more of this week, though. Number one, Lady loves Derek Chauvin getting 30 fucking years for killing George Floyd. I mean, what can we even say? The man who choked a man to death on video got 30 years for his actions. Now, I watched this silly and misinformed ass video the other day on Instagram where some young black man was hollering about, what has BLM ever done for me? Ever, ever, ever. Ciao. Let me ask you this. You think Derek Chauvin was going to be convicted 10 years ago, even under the first Black president? Come on now, child. The movement lives. And even if it looks different, it is growing. And you would be silly, you are silly, to try and argue that the movement had zero impact on this case. Lucky for me and for you, we ain't got time for all that. Now, I really wish people would, like, study movements. Don't be just talking out the fucking side of your neck about shit. Understand how change happens, the ebbs and flows, the contradictions— Maybe if you did, we'd be up in arms about the right things if we were all talking about the same things. Now, for the abolitionists out there, yes, I hear you. I do. I'm studying. And jails are whack and not the fucking answer. And Chauvin needs to be put on a timeout for taking a life, a father, and a friend. God is working on me, child. And in the meantime, it's good to know he didn't fucking get away with it. That's that on that. Other things that Lady loves this week? Well, Essence Fest, giving us all the black magic we needed. Now listen, I have never been to Essence Fest before. I might have even talked shit about it, and I still might, because these big-ass festivals ain't for me. I prefer small groups to large crowds every time. But, 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 when Tiffany Cross calls, you answer. And in the meantime, you get to have dinner with your girlfriends and your homies and you fucking get to see Janet Jackson and D-Nice and woo cha, woo, he is fine and he is sweet. OK, we're not going to go all these places. You get to see DeBarge, you get to see Jasmine Sullivan and all that. And no, I ain't seen Nicki Minaj because I still feel a way about her vaccine disinformation. And you get to do it as the guest of the mayor of New Orleans. Well, shit, let's just say it's lit. Now, honestly, I wish there was more political activation being done there and done well. But gathering tens of thousands of Black people together to have a good time ain't nothing to sneeze at, at all. Essence is bigger than Coachella, and it's fucking lovely. Nola, you owe me nothing, honey. And I'll tell you what, auntie can still stay up till 5 a.m. and catch a flight at 8. (laughs) All right, y'all. So welcome back to Ladies Love Notes, where we give you all of the real about being single and dating in your 40s. This week, we are answering your questions about love, relationships, dating in your 40s. Now, (laughs) y'all are giving me life with these questions, and please keep them coming, okay? We have a Google Doc up. You can find it on our stories and on our site, Lady Don't Take No, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Now, look, a friend of mine who was just recently separated from her person, and now she's putting her toes in the water... Okay, your girl texted me at 8 a.m. my time, which means this boss bitch was awake at 5 a.m. texting me this madness. So out of respect for my sis and her grind, I'm finna bump her question right up to the top of the list because boss bitches got things to do. Now the question is, why the fuck did this dude tell me I'm too successful and it makes him feel some kind of way? Oh, honey. Okay, well, first of all, let me say this. When you venture out into the streets... Depending on the circumstances, shit can get real, real, real fast. Now, what I mean by that is, when you've been in something for a long time with someone, you forget that you're going to encounter people who do and say wild shit because they ain't known you as long as your former person knew you. Now, I'm setting up this context because it's important to know that going back into the dating pool after not having been in it for a while, well... (laughs) It's just going to feel like taking a cold shower. Shocking, and it takes a while to get used to. Now, with that being said, run, don't walk, away from this one right here. And thank your ancestors and your guides that they made it so plain, so quick. They wanted you to see exactly what you was working with, honey. Needless to say, that anyone who is threatened by your success ain't finna be there cheering you on when you need them too. So... Having dated people who were threatened by me or insecure about being with me, let me just tell you the truth. There is not a damn thing you can do about any of that, except find someone who celebrates you and how hard you've worked to get to where you are and who respects and admires how hard you finna work to get to the rest of the places you finna go. Hmm. Now, I know you're not trying to lock it down with this person, but I'm going to say this. Don't even sleep with people like this. They will drain your fucking energy. You will always be thinking about how to make them more comfortable as opposed to how to just feel good in your own skin. I'm serious about this. Someone who is threatened by your success ain't going to be able to enjoy it with you, child. And Lord knows for girls like us who grind like us, we have a hard enough time enjoying our own success. Why you got to add another factor to what's already hard? I have already told y'all, the streets are not the fuck for me. I can tell you 100%. This dude I dealt with for one and a half seconds said to me, Oh, your house feels earthy. It feels like I could grow a seed in here. No, sir. No, the fuck you won't. You're not going to grow nothing up in here. Just compliment me on my taste and keep it moving. Look, here's my point. You're going to meet a lot of these people when you're dipping your toe in the water. And you're going to meet these people because you got to do your own work to figure out what you want. Now, one thing I have found helpful is to make a list of all the qualities you want in a person you're seeing casually and a person you might want to stand still with for a bit. Keep adding to it as you go. Now, I do this, and one thing you'll see on my list is A, somebody who has their own passions, B, someone who celebrates me rather than feeling threatened or insecure about me, and C, someone who likes me for me and not what I do. Trust me on this one. You will waste a lot less of your precious time. Good luck, my sis, and Godspeed. Them, tell the people who are listening how they can follow you and your incredible work on the socials
0: you can go to uh, uh to get my podcast um, and you'll also see reference there to legacy of speed you can also go to pushkin.fm and you can see the full slate of stuff that we do um, over here at pushkin
1: amazing thank you so much for coming on the show we appreciate you
0: my pleasure thanks so much
1: thank you Now that's it for Lady Don't Take No, but I will be back here next Thursday with a new conversation and some more news you can use. We appreciate you joining us. And please, please, let's keep the conversation going. Tell us what's on your mind. Tell us what you like and tell us what you ain't going to take no more of. And don't forget to submit to Ladies Love Notes. On Twitter, we're at Lady Take. On Insta, we're at Lady Don't Take No Pod. We are also on Facebook at Lady Don't Take No Podcast by Alicia Garza. We post ways to do something about things you hear on this show all over our social media. So if we got you amped up today, check out the socials to find out how you can take action. And let's give a special shout out to Jahari Farrar for making sure the people get what they need from our socials. We appreciate you. Please subscribe and write us a review and let the people know what you've heard here today. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our incredible theme is Biloterics. And this pod is supported by the Black Futures Lab. And me? I'm your host, Alicia Garza. Remember, make a list all the shit you want so you can avoid the shit you don't want. But make sure on your list is self-love. That's right. I said it. Because Lady Don't Take No.
0: Lady Don't Take No. She insists on respect the sister walk around like
1: the woman if she won't speak unless it's something worse saying don't play the girl take herself so seriously people stare curiously. she got a natural way her hips sway
0: furiously like luxurious. love y'all there is a self